You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. You know, one of the most important things that I can do as one of the teaching pastors here is to just give you an accurate view of who God is. It's so very important that you see Him through biblical lenses because that's the revealed Word of God. That's the truth. And as we see the truth about God, it enlightens us as to who we are. And so we spend this next few weeks in this previous weeks looking at this series called Redeemer. We want you to know Him. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so when you wonder, what is the God of the Old Testament like? You can see Him in bright, bold, living color when you look at Jesus interacting with people. That's Him. When you listen to His words as He teaches, that is the incarnation of God's Word. And C.S. Lewis one time said that when he was younger, he used to see God as the kind of person who was always snooping around looking to find somebody that was having fun so that he could stop them. And a lot of people have a view of God that he is waiting to bust them, just waiting to catch them in the act of some horrendous sin. In some sense that they're just not living up to, they're failing, not measuring up to who they ought to be, who they want to be, who they proclaim to be, who they pretend to be. They're failing that. And because of that, they walk around with a low-grade kind of fever, like a low-grade doubt, a low-grade fear, a low-grade sense always that God is disappointed. God is ready to flip on his lights as he's following you in his car behind you. He's ready to catch you. Well, this morning we're going to find a woman who has gotten caught. And in the very act of being caught, she encounters the holy living God in Jesus. And I want you to know this, that as you sit here this morning, there is nothing about you that our Father doesn't know. When you confess sin... That's not the first time he finds out about it. He already knows. When you confess fear, doubt, apathy, indifference, when you confess these things, he already knows these things. You have not revealed something to him. You have agreed with him about something he already knows. And I think that he sees sin in our lives differently than we see sin in our lives. He sees it for what it is. It is a thwarted, corrupted, there was a longing that was right and good that got turned on its head, and it turned into sin in your life, and it is killing you. It is at work destroying, waging war against you. And so what I want to do is I want to ask you to just give God your full attention this morning. Let Him speak to your heart today. Let Him reveal what is true. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, we praise you and thank you for who you are. Lord, we want to know you accurately because there's a hundred competing narratives in our mind for what is true, for what is priority, what is valuable, what matters most. There are so many different stories about who we are in our minds, what makes us happy, what makes us whole, how you view us. 
Oh God, I pray that as I preach through your word, that you would speak through the scriptures and through me to your bride, your beloved church. Speak to them. Speak love and kindness and grace and conviction and draw us near to you. You are here. And we just don't always see that. We don't always believe that. You are here in our midst. You are a good, kind, gracious, gentle, loving God. You are holy. And in that holiness, Lord, we have nothing to do with you apart from your son, Jesus. We have no shelter outside of him. But in him, we have boldness. And we have safety. And we have freedom. So, God, I pray that you would use this time and use this uh, sermon for your ends, for your glory. And pray it in Jesus' name. John chapter 8 says these words, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, uh, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? He said this to test him, that they might bring some charge against him. Let's stop right there and let's just kind of walk our way through this passage and find the treasures of grace that are here. It's worth noting that this passage in its own right has some controversy around it as to whether or not it actually fits in this space where it's listed here in John chapter 8. Um, I don't think that's that important because it's pretty universally agreed that this is uh, an occurrence that happened. But it says here that in the midst of a controversy amongst the religious rulers who wanted to arrest Jesus, they had in the previous chapter sent officers to arrest Jesus. And when they heard him, they were conflicted because some of them said, no one's ever talked like this before. We've, we, we went to arrest him, and we're kind of blown away by who he was. And it, there was this conflict, and it says that they each went to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. But then the next morning, early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he started to teach them. Now, if you go to Israel, and I intend to go here sometime in the next 12 months, we're kind of working on the details, but if you go to Israel... One of the most beautiful things is to go to uh, the Mount of Olives. It's just on, you can see the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives, and you can see the 2,000-year-old olive trees that are right there, and you can see it. It's a peaceful place now, and I suspect a peaceful place then. But you'll notice that Jesus is sleeping outdoors. And what does he say? One of us potential followers... The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Well, this seems to be one of the places where he's pointing to is that's what it is, that he is ready to go, sleep on the uh, Mount of Olives, and then in the very next morning, wake up early and go into the temple. We're not far from the cross in this chapter. And so things, as you move towards Jerusalem, get more and more pressure filled. But what did Jesus do? He gets up and he goes to the temple and he starts to teach. 
And he does this because, according to Matthew chapter 9, he had seen the masses of people like sheep without a shepherd. They were harangued and harassed. They were needing someone to come and teach them what was true. And so that's what Jesus is doing there in the temple. Now, mind you, in the midst of this kind of interaction, there is a group of people who utterly hate Jesus. It's the religious leaders of that day, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, but also the scribes and Pharisees, the religious scholars who are like lawyers. The scribes are like lawyers. The Pharisees are like professor types who have a spiritual authority in the nation of Israel at that time, about 6,000 of them at this point, according to Josephus, and they can't stand Jesus. They didn't like John the Baptist either, because they were the spiritual leaders. They're the voice of God to the masses. So here comes Jesus, here comes John the Baptist, and they are teaching the masses. They are getting baptized. People are getting baptized under them. They are starting to have a voice in Israel. And the leaders of Israel see this, these scribes, these Pharisees, and they say, hang on, that's our turf. That's our role. And you're you're coming into the middle of it, and you're causing us grief. You're going to displace us. People came, and he taught them. It says in verse 3 that the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in their, in, in their midst, uh, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. How in the world did they pull that off? They had to have entrapped this woman. Maybe she was a very willing victim, but they had set a trap. They had some man somewhere who said, I can help you nab Jesus because we want to put him in a pincher movement. We want to put him in a place where he has to decide. And so he says, look, we know what the law says about adultery, I think I can arrange a scenario whereby we can put Jesus in a box and put him in a place where he can't escape. They've caught a woman in the midst of adultery, and they calm these religious leaders, dragging her. They had to have just barged in on her in the wee hours of the morning and say, we caught you, you're coming with us. And they dragged this woman out of that bed and they bring, him, bring her into the temple area. God only knows. It doesn't tell us here if they gave her a chance to get covered up. But they had grabbed this woman. As Jesus is teaching a large group in the temple, there's a commotion behind them. It's these scribes and Pharisees with this woman bringing her and throwing her in front of everybody saying, Sinner, caught, guilty, Moses says in the law that we are to execute, quote-unquote, such women. Now, what do you say? You know, there's a a couple of questions. If they were so concerned about the law, if they were concerned about truly what is Moses' law, what is the heart of God, they don't need to bring her in front of Jesus. If it's their understanding that such women are called to be executed, we'll go ahead and do it. 
go ahead. I mean, you don't need to do anything more. You don't need to drag her through the streets and through the courtyards into the temple. If you guys are really concerned about the truth, go right ahead. They're not concerned about that. They're not concerned about the truth. They're concerned about their position. And Jesus is threatening that. And because of that, they're looking for a chance. It even says, they said this to him because they wanted to bring a charge against him. Moses says in the law, he commanded in the law, that women like this are to be executed. Now, what do you say? I want to just pause for a second. Religion is never seen as a good thing in the New Testament. There's only one verse where it's seen in a positive light. You know what religion is, right? There is something very uniquely different about religion and the gospel. Religion is do this, don't do that. A set of rules. Things that you must do, things that you must not do. But it's a set of rules, a set of moral codes. And by obeying these religious codes, these do's and these don'ts, you can ascend up the stairway that leads you towards heaven. By your own moral effort, by your doing and your not doing, that's what religion is. The gospel is different from that. The gospel is a proclamation of something that has historically happened for you. And so you'll see the difference between a religious heart that believes that if I obey, if I do good, if I do right, God will bless and honor me. There's another person who understands they didn't do right, they didn't do good, and God has sent his son to die in their place, to pay the penalty for their sins. And that has situated them differently with God. They are now right with God because of something that he has done for them in the person of Jesus. And so this is a religious group who has caught a sinner in the act. And rather than doing what their own prescription is by Moses, instead they bring her into the presence of the temple, into a very public place, and show that she's a guilty sinner who has been caught. And they want to know, Moses says this, we want to know what you say. Well, indeed, Moses does say that if you commit adultery, you are to be executed. In fact, let's just look at Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. You can see exactly what it says about what we're to do with women such as this. It says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. And so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So Moses does say, you should execute women such as this. Anybody catch what's missing here? Where's the guy? I mean, they're misquoting Scripture, which is, is really easy for them to do because most people don't know what the law says. Most people don't understand it. But it actually says that if you're going to do this, bring the guy also. If she was caught in the very act, she was not by herself. So there should be two guilty people there, but there's not. 
there's just this woman. And they have put Jesus in their minds into a trap that he cannot escape. See, if he goes ahead with this execution, he's going to be seen as not only intolerant, ungracious, unkind, he's also going to be seen by Rome as a threat because he's not a part of the religious Sanhedrin. He's not a leader of Israel at this time. He's just a priest or a prophet, a teacher. And so if he says yes to that, he's in jeopardy with the people in one way and he's in jeopardy with the Roman authorities in another way. They can bring that charge against him. You know what else they can do if he doesn't do it? They can tell everybody he does not care about the law doesn't care what Moses' authority says in this. And so in their minds, we got him. No matter what he says, we've nailed him. In their minds, he's just a, a hilly, dumb carpenter who has come to the big leagues and gotten in over his head because these are legal scholars. They know how to win a debate. And they want to bring a charge against Jesus. It's important to know this, that as they're barking at him, you give us an answer. It says that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Verse 7, they continued to ask him, and he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So, they had it in their minds, no matter what happens, we got him. And then he bends down on the ground because, they're, again, they're the smart guys and they think they've got him, but really they're like six-year-old checkers players up against a supercomputer chess master, deep blue or whatever. They have no idea who he really is. They have underestimated him again. They've seen him as not very complex, not very wise. And so when he bends down and starts to ride on the ground, this is a strange response, isn't it? We don't know what he wrote. The Scriptures don't tell us what he wrote. We can speculate. I have some ideas. In fact, it's my guess that either he started to write out the Ten Commandments or he started to write out the myriad of other capital offenses that could cause an execution from Old Testament law, but he bends down and he starts to write. And as he writes in the dirt and the sand, it says that they continued on hammering at him, hammering at him. What do you say? Give us an answer. We want your answer. Because they believe that they have this trap perfectly set. What they don't know is that Jesus cannot be trapped by this kind of foolishness. And so as he writes in the stand, and they continue on, he stands up and he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Not the first time you've heard that, right? I mean, people that don't even know the Bible know that verse. Usually they pull it out when they're in the midst of sin and got caught. And they're like, oh, Caught me, did you? Well, let him who has no sin cast a stone at me. It's really just a way of trying to get off the hook. Most people know this verse. But in this context, there's something wonderful that is happening. It's as if Jesus has said this. Indeed, Moses does say that. And more than that. Let's have an execution. You guys are right. 
Let's, the law says it, so let's go, let's do it. There's only one thing I want, since you're asking me what I say of this. I say, let the one who has no sin be the first one to take his stone and throw it at this woman. In a sense, he said, all right, let's have an execution. All I need is noble executioners. I need the guy who has no sin to take his rock and be the first one to throw at this woman. You can see the expression on her face, can't you? She's terrified. She's been caught in the act, and she doesn't say, no, that's not true. She's just standing there, and she's just heard from Jesus, yes, let's do an execution. Let's go ahead with that. After saying that, after saying, let him with no sin throw the first stone, Jesus goes right back to the dirt and keeps on writing. What is he writing? Whatever he's writing, here's the effect that it has. As we look at this, it says, Once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Let's just stop for a second. Whatever he was writing, somehow and in some way, they decided, you know, if we're going to execute sinners, if the wrath of God is going to fall on the sinners, on the ones who have been caught, if, it's gonna, if justice is going to be meted out today, it's not going to stop with her. It will start with her. But if it's going to meet it out, it's going to find me too. I too have committed a crime and a sin against a holy God. And this is long after Jesus had taught uh, the... Uh, uh, oh gosh, uh, Sermon on the Mount, where he said, even if you look at a woman with lustful in your eye, you've already committed adultery with her. If you speak to your brother in anger, you are guilty of hellfire that you have committed murder in your heart. Listen, I have talked to an awful lot of people who have committed adultery. I've talked to a lot of murderers. Now, I know what you could be thinking is, oh, wow, being a pastor, you get to the really nitty-gritty stuff. Listen, I think you're misunderstanding if you thought that. Every last one of us falls guilty in front of a holy God. Every last one of us would be in real trouble if the justice of God, the wrath of God was going to fall on sinners that day. If we did not have a Savior, we stand naked in front of a holy God who understands that we too are guilty in front of him. And somehow, as Jesus wrote on the dirt, the older ones must have read it and heard it and said, I'm dropping this stone. <laughs> there ain't a chance I'm the one that's going to throw that first stone. And here's why. I'm guilty too. I'm guilty as much as she is guilty. And because of that, I will throw no stone. And so all around them, you probably heard thud, and someone scurry away. Thud, and another person walk away. They didn't just say, I'm not doing the execution. They said, I'm not staying here any longer. You ever been in a place 
You ever been with a group, maybe in worship, and it felt like a holy presence just started to shine on the whole experience? Like God is here right now, but our hearts are dull. Can't see, can't feel, can't hear Him, but He's here. And, and I look at the outpouring in Asbury, and I'm like, wow, Lord, it's like, it's not like you were more there than before. It's just you lifted the veil and you showed yourself and the glory and the presence and the goodness of God is holiness just descends in a particularly powerful way and people's eyes are open and they see and feel it. I think that's what happened in this moment. As Jesus wrote out whatever he wrote out, it wasn't just her that was guilty. It was every last one of them that was guilty. And the younger ones didn't know it quite as early as the older ones who knew their own heart, who knew the darkness of their sin, who, hide, who had been hiding and looking at people like her and going, you are not like me. You're worse. Now, see, I've done <laughs> this job a long time. That's funny. I didn't used to be able to say that, but I can say that now. There are people in this room right now who are identifying with this caught woman. There are people who are going, God, as I read this story, I really identify with her. My heart is a mess of sin, of lust, of greed, of pride, of all of that. And I, I'm as much caught and I'm as much in the bullseye of that justice as she is. And there's others in this room who feel pretty righteous. You haven't done anything like that in your mind. You haven't committed adultery, at least not outside of your own mind and in your heart. You've not done that. You're not dirty like that. You look at people and you go, man, you dirty bunch, you need execution. You need to be judged. Well, when the holiness of God descends in this way and just shines in this way, this is what happened. Those who thought they were righteous started to drop their rocks. Those who were caught are scared and waiting for a response. When I worked at the treatment center that I worked at during college, it was a residential treatment center. Um, you know, I wanted to do industrial psychology. It was just a way of saying you want to set up systems so that people are, I hate to say manipulated, but so much you, you could set up a system where people would feel encouraged to buy or encouraged to perform or whatever it was. You know, that's where I thought, man, that's what I want to do. And as I was going to school to study psychology at the University of North Texas every day, four times a, a week, I would work an eight-hour shift at this treatment center. That's how I paid for college. Um, and I would try to take what I was sharing at the learning at school, I'd try to share it at the treatment center at night. And I found myself going, this stuff just doesn't work. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. And so I'd go in and I'd share the gospel with these kids and I'd buy a Bible for them if they got saved. And man, I'm before and not, I'm teaching the Bible. I'm like, man, this is what I want to do. I want to teach the Bible. It's like so rewarding, you know? Scared to death of public speaking, but I'll have to get over that at some point, is what my thought was. I buy a Bible for a kid named Brandon. Brandon, you'd come in in the morning and find that Brandon had been spitting on his mirror. Says, Brandon, why are you spitting on your mirror? You didn't want to say it. I don't want to tell you. 
Brandon, why do you keep spitting on your mirror? So I just started praying for Brandon. Just praying, Lord, whatever's broken in that kid. This kid's born again. But yet he goes into the bathroom, spits on the mirror. Uh, one night he says to me, can we talk? I said, sure. He said, you know, you asked me why I spit on the mirror, and I'll tell you why. Because when I see my face, I'm ashamed of what I did. I'm ashamed of what I did to get drugs back when I lived in Ohio. I'm embarrassed of the things that I did so that people would give me money, so that if they gave me money, I could buy drugs because my life was in such turmoil and my heart was in such pain that I did things that I'm embarrassed and horrified and shamed of right now. And so when I see my face, all I want to do is spit in it because I'm dirty. And I sat there with this kid, and I just shared the good news again with a believer and saying to him, we can't say that what you did is right. What we can say is that all of your guilt and shame and fear was covered by Jesus. And so as you see the gospel, not just to see you get saved, but as a believer who has lost track of what is true or maybe never really understood it, you start to see that in the holiness of God, you have no shelter but Jesus. And if you don't bring into the light that thing, that regret, that fear, that shame, if you don't bring it, it just lives there making you want to sit in your own face because you're ashamed. But when you bring it right in front of the presence of God, you find what this woman found. Listen to this. Listen to what happens next. As these self-righteous ones who are ready for an execution find out that they too are guilty and drop their rocks and walk away, it says, but when uh, they heard it one by one, they began with the older ones walking away. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up as he'd been riding and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Everyone there knew that in the presence of holy God, they were a sinner. They had no right to cast a stone. In fact, there's only one person there that had a right to cast that stone, right? There was one without sin who had every right to say to her, your day has come, you are guilty, and just hurl a rock at her. It was Jesus, the only one who had the right to do it. And yet when he looks this scared woman in the eyes, and he says, where are your condemners? Where are your accusers? She says, there's no one here but me and you. And at the end of the day, that's the only voice that needs to speak. Jesus. A thousand people could sign off on her. A thousand people could condemn her. It's going to come down to this. The Redeemer, what does he say? He says, I do not condemn you either. Go and sin no more. That's so good. So reaffirming. Caught in the act standing face to face with the Savior and Him saying, 
I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, I love this story, but I've got a problem with this story. I mean, doesn't somebody have to pay for sin? I mean, it's great, but it sounds kind of like he just let her off. I mean, she didn't say, I'm not guilty. She basically said, I'm guilty and no one condemns me. Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. But here's the key. He's not just taking sin and brushing it under the rug. He's not saying it's no big deal, just go on about your way and don't sin anymore. What he's saying is, I don't condemn you either. I will not execute you. However, I will be condemned for you. I will be executed for you. My blood will be shed for what you did wrong. See, this is the beauty of the gospel. It's not just you're off the hook. It's that you got found out, you got caught, I got caught, we all got embarrassed, we all got shamed, we all got exposed. And Jesus didn't just say, no problem, no worry. He said, I'll take the execution for you. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the beauty of this passage. Someone has to pay for what she has done wrong, her and the man. And Jesus says, those people can't execute you. I could, but I'm not going to. I'll be executed for you. Tim Keller tells a story of a woman who came to his church. After the sermon was over, she comes up to him and shakes his hand and says, I'm not a Christian. I just really wanted to come here because I wanted to meet you and I wanted to hear what you had to say because my boss actually comes to your church. He said, oh, well, tell me that story. She said, well, the thing is, I made such a terrible mistake at work. She worked for one of the networks there in New York City. She's a news person. She said, I made such a terrible mistake in something that I did at work the other day that I had no excuse for it. And my boss and his boss and his boss invited us into a room, and I was cold busted. There was nothing I could do. And in the middle of it, when the boss's 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 boss asked, who screwed up? Everybody was looking at me, and you know what my boss said? It was my mistake. I give her bad information. It was on me. And she said, I left that room and I followed him and I said, why did you do that? Why did you? I've had bosses who took credit for my good decisions. I've never seen this where a boss would take credit for a bad decision that could have got me fired and would certainly get you in trouble. He said, yeah, that's the difference. I'd get in trouble. You would have gotten fired. I wouldn't get fired, but you would have. She said, so why'd you do it? And he said, well, because I'm a Christian. And someone took my credit for the things I've done wrong a long time ago, and he took the execution that was due to me. And because of that, I took credit for your screw-up. I'd love for you to come to church with me sometime, hear more about Jesus. Friends, do you see this? Do you see that we have a bread, a loaf of bread, and we have a cup? It's, it's not just bread and cup. It's the symbols of an execution, 
of an innocent man. Because we are a bunch of harlots, every last one of us. Or we're self-righteous Pharisees who think we're not. And we need a Savior. My daughter, Hope, I've told this story, bear with me. I tell stories over and over again at this age. My daughter, Hope, was in Scotland. And they were, this said it was Livingston, Scotland. <laughs> it's not far from Edinburgh, but she was there at a high school with her uh, high school group that had taken a mission trip over to Scotland. And she said, it was really awesome, Dad. She said, we went over there, and man, we shared the gospel with these other high schoolers. She's a high schooler. All her teams, about 30 of them are high schools. They go over to this high school in Scotland, and, and they're sharing the gospel. And she said, Dad, it's so dark over there. Like, just spiritually, you can feel the, the heaviness of it. And she said, but man, it's like God just showed up a couple times. And I said, well, come on. I want to hear it. Tell me about it. Tell me more. I want to know, you know. And she says, well, one time we were at the end of the trip, and we're there doing what's kind of felt like a pep rally to us, but they just kind of took all the lights down dim, and my group leader, my daughter can sing just beautifully. She said, she said my group leader said, will you sing the song, Ever Be? Your praise will ever be on my lips. You know, and she said, we only had a microphone and the, the track. We didn't have anything else. And she said, so I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And she said, Dad, as, as I started to sing... It's like the place just started to glow with the lights down. It's like God just supernaturally just inhabited the whole gym. And as we sang, our group was singing by ourselves, and they started to sing too. And she said it was just awesome. And one of the kids from Scotland came up to her later and said, What was that? What happened? And she goes, well, it's, it's called worship, and we were made for it. We were made to worship him. You were made to sing out his praise. You were made to live your life in front of him and say to him, though I was guilty, caught in the act, or I was self-righteous and thought I was better than other people, I found out that I wasn't and that I needed King Jesus to die for me, to take my execution, to invite me to the Father, into the throne room where only He could bring me in because I couldn't get in there by myself. That's why we take communion. That's why we take communion because we don't have communion with God apart from the bread and the juice that symbolize the, symbolize the broken body and the spilled blood that allows us to come into the presence of God. Friends, hear me now. If you don't know for sure that you're right with God, I know for some of you, you're like, oh, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. Okay, good. If you don't know that today, if you died, you're ready to meet God unveiled, then you need to find your shelter in Jesus Christ. Not in how good you can do. Trust me, you're not good enough. None of us are. Maybe you're not as bad as some, but you're not nearly good enough to come into the presence of God. You need a Savior. His name is Jesus. You don't need a bunch of rules. You don't need to clean yourself up first, get all dressed up for Him, and then present yourself. You need a Savior to dress you in Himself, to hide you in Himself. Trust in Jesus, not in your righteousness. Trust in Him. Call out to Him. Say, I am not sufficient to cleanse myself. I need you to do it. 
I need you to forgive me. I need you to save me. I need you to bring me before your Father, only dressed in your good deeds, not in mine. Trust Him today. And if you did that some time ago, if that's part of your story from generations back, or not generations, but years back, if that's part of your story, then I want you to hear this. Keep coming back. Keep trusting Him. Keep asking Him for grace. Keep asking Him to cover you and to reveal Himself to you. In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And that's what we see here. How does God feel about adulterers? How does God feel about those caught in the act? You can see it right here in John chapter 8. So how does he feel about us? He loves us, and he calls us to a holy life. He says, go and sin no more. Walk forward in the freedom that is yours. Let's pray.